What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Tonight on the world's only rock and roll talk show, the most amazing psychedelic band of the modern era, The Flaming Lips, have a new album out at War with the Mystics. We've got a review of the album. We've got a review of their live show, which we just saw at the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas. Plus, we've got live in the Jim and Kay Maybe studio, Jenny Lewis and her band. She was here with the group and the Watson Twins singing behind her. Both of us uh, love that album when we reviewed it a while back. It was a treat to have her here. Plus, we've got an homage to an unlikely alternative country or rock hero and some other news. That is Prince. That's the concluding song on his new album, 3121. It's called Get on the Boat, and he just slays me every time when he gives a shout-out to Maceo Parker, veteran, of course, of James Brown's famous Flames. Let's uh, Maceo take it away on the saxophone. Prince made big news uh, for the first time in a long time with 3121, which came out last week on Universal Motown, and in week one sold 180,000 copies and debuted at number one on the Billboard album charts. The first number one debut in a three-and-a-half-decade career. That's hard to believe. That he's the, uh, never had a record that yeah. debuted at the top of the pop charts, and this is the first time he's done that. If you've read any of the press, uh, any of the reviews by people who weren't uh, myself or Greg Cott about Prince's new 3121, you've read this. This is the album! He's back! The Purple Prince of Paisley Park has finally come back. <laughs> now, if that sounded like deja vu, it's because it is. Since his famous tiff with Warner Brothers Records, and you'll remember that, that's when he was prompted to uh, write Slave on himself in protest to his mistreatment at the hands of the record company, according to him, and uh, change his name to an unpronounceable symbol just to mess us all up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how would you even say that on radio? It was hard enough to print it in the newspaper. Yes, the artist formerly known as Yeah, the artist formerly known, which I just, you know, I mean, you know, hey, once a prince, always a prince. You know what I mean? Ever since then, Prince has been doing pretty much one-off releases, uh, e- either putting out his albums himself or doing these one-offs with major labels. He did one with Arista, did one with Columbia. Now he's on Universal Motown. And each time, the critics have been prompted to say, this is the album! Prince is back! He's finally made... A record as good as the ones he did in his heyday. And by that, we mean those classic Prince albums, Dirty Mind or 1999 or Sign of the Times. I would even say Around the World in the Day, Mm -hmm. which was flawed but brilliant. We should point out, Jim, that this comeback really started in 2004, the Musicology album, which he did a very canny thing uh, with. He he, uh, included it in the price for his sold-out tour. 
Right. Uh, so, you know, as a result, he had a two million selling record. The comeback continues with the new record, 3121, legitimately a number one album. Didn't give it away to the shows, just sold it over the, you know, just like any other artist would at retail. 180,000 copies, a pretty strong first week. We're going to talk a little bit in a moment about whether we think it's an artistic success or not, 3121. But we've got to put this in context, Greg. I mean, it's hard to imagine an artist at the uh, three-plus decade point having this kind of success again. Yeah, it's it's very strange uh, for Prince to, to be making a comeback only because it's so rare for an artist at his stage, mid-40s, you know, apparently had seen his better days two decades ago, uh, suddenly back at the top of the chart. Think about a band like The Grateful Dead. It was a non-entity. Uh, you know, continued as a to, recording act. As, as a recording act. They had continued to do well on the touring circuit, although not nearly as well as they would in the stadium-level 90s. Right. And part of the reason that the Grateful Dead were able to tour stadiums once again in the 90s, they found a brand-new audience with this record in 1987 called In the Dark, with that their only top 40 song, Touch of Grey. Unparalleled in the third decade of a career yeah. for this band to finally broach the top 40. Yes, they were uh, 20 years past the electric Kool-Aid acid test days. Yeah. And here they had the top 40 hit, top 10 album, a 2 million selling album, still their biggest selling studio album in their third decade. Santana, mm-hmm. my God, what an example there. First couple albums went platinum. Uh, after that, it was a, just a long, slow descent into irrelevance until 1999. Supernatural album comes around, mm-hmm. sells 15 million copies in the United States alone. Very canny marketing on the part of Clive Davis, pairing him with these contemporary musicians, contemporary stars like Rob Thomas, Wycliffe Sean, Everlast. Hey now, all you sinners, put your lights on, put your lights on. The record went through the roof. Suddenly, Santana mattered again after several decades of not mattering at all, except to his hardcore Woodstock-era constituency. Well, and Clive Davis tried to repeat that success, uh, Greg, we should note, uh, in 2000, the following year, with... Prince uh, and the Rave on to the Joy Fantastic album, sticking uh, Eve and Sheryl Crow and uh, Ani DeFranco on on the Prince record for no discernible reason whatsoever, <laughs> uh, did not do what Carlos Santana had done. Some other late career comebacks that are that are fairly famous, you know, Eric Clapton, late in life with Tears in Heaven, uh, in 1992 has this huge top ten hit for the first time in decades, you know, since since the uh, mm-hmm. I Shot the Sheriff kind of era. Bonnie Raitt, you know, with the tenth album of her career, Nick of Time, but. I think that the big example lately, and probably the one the Prince is looking at, is Mariah Carey. Daydream, her 95 album, had sold 10 million copies. Huge numbers. Huge numbers. But she'd fallen off. Uh, Charm Bracelet, the album before this most recent one, only went gold. 500,000. From 10 million to 500,000? That's a heck of a drop. Well, don't forget, she had that horrible movie in there, Glitter. Glitter, yeah. 
nearly single-handedly destroyed her career. I mean, the New York Times had a front-page story saying Mariah Carey's over. She was basically paid to walk away from a record deal. Well, that and the famous meltdown online where she was posting on her blog how she's kind of losing her marbles. And so what happens? Then Mariah comes back out of nowhere with this record, The Emancipation of Mimi. And this remains inexplicable to me because it's a horrible, horrible, dreadful, miserable, awful, (laughs) bad, no good. I I wish I had more (laughs) negative adjectives at my disposal. Album it. I mean, it stinks, but it's sold six million copies so far. So you know Prince was that was where Prince was aiming. Mm-hmm. Can he do it? That's the key question. Is the music on here good enough? It, you know, in his middle 40s, on his own, basically uh, a maverick artist, is he still able to have the command at commercial radio at MTV? Uh, to get singles played on the radio and to sell the records in those kind of numbers. Well, let's give people a sample of this record, and then we'll weigh in with our two cents, our review. This is the title track. Um, 3121 is the name of the album. It's the name of this song. It's a nice piece of electro-funk, good-time, celebratory, house-party groove. I mean, you know, it makes me think of 1999, and not just because it's another song with numbers. I guess 3121 is the address of the place where the party is happening, (laughs) and Prince wants you there. So let's listen to this on Sound Opinions. 3121, that's where the party be, according to Prince. That's the title track of his new album. Uh, Greg, I I think there's some fine moments here, but I'm going to just deflate right off the top. Uh, what all the other critics are saying, that this is finally THE album, THE in capital letters. People have been wanting Prince to make THE album for 15 years now. I don't think it's THE album. The lows are far too low for it to be THE album. There's a song called Te Amo Corazon, which is just a horrible, saccharine piece of tripe ballad. And the song Beautiful, Loved, and Blessed with uh, his new female protege, Tamar, (laughs) who is just kind of a lightweight piece of nothing. Uh, Those are bad moments, but the good moments are really, really good the good moments are great on this record i don't like it when he starts to rap uh incense and candles i wish you'd give that up he's never been able to you pull know, that off that that's his little attempt to become contemporary you know prince you're good enough you don't need to do any of that other crap you know you yeah. are good enough on your own and i actually think he's at his best on this record like on the track we just heard 3121 where it's basically just prince himself in the studio playing all the instruments manipulating the studio using it as an instrument 
I think he shows the Neptunes and people like Scott Storch a few yeah. tricks about you know how to use the studio as an instrument and make really contemporary sounding tracks. But that having been said, there's nothing new. He's not breaking new ground anymore. It's much like U2's last two albums. He's making music that we all think of as Prince music. You know, I think to an extent you're right, uh, but I do think that those three tracks in particular that I think were, are kind of very studio-intensive manipulations uh, sound really futuristic and really cool to me. 3121, Black Sweat, and The Word to me sound like really kind of cool tracks where Prince really stakes out what he should be doing. Because mm-hmm. I still think he can be very uh, cutting edge if he wants to be. The problem with this record to me, Jim, is that he spreads himself too thin. He's trying to be all things to all people again. He's trying to be the Prince of 1999, the Prince of Sign of the Times, where he could make a track for every radio format. Right, right, You know, he's got the Spanish ballad. He's got the adult contemporary ballad. He's got the funky Latin tinge track. He's got the rap track. Uh, You know what? Screw that. You don't have to do that anymore. You're not going to sell 15 million copies anymore. You can sell 2 million copies to our hardcore fan base that is just going to love this cutting-edge stuff that you can still do in the studio. Focus on that stuff. The other problem is that since Prince's conversion to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, you know, the album includes a big note, all praise and glory to Jehovah the Most High. All right, so this is not obnoxious in-your-face preaching, as some of the last uh, couple of records have been. Musicology had some real down moments because of that Rainbow Children, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Some horrible stuff. But still, you know, Prince trying to be the old dirty-minded Lothario and, I mean, he was the master at filth. R. Kelly had nothing on this guy. You know, so there's this song, Lolita, and it's a great, catchy, wonderful groove song. And, and you know, But the chorus is, Lolita, you're sweeter, but you'll never make a cheater out of me. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy before who would Whoa. not only have slept with Lolita, but her grandmother, her mother, and the bus driver. You know what I mean? And now he's like, you know, but I don't cheat now. I'm faithful. Well, Hallelujah. 30, amen. In 3121, he's telling everybody, take your clothes off when you walk in, but, oh, put on the robe and sandals. Yeah. Like, <laughs> undress, but then put this on okay no naked people walking around in my house is this the same guy who made controversy <laughs> so I, I mean i look prince has a right to get old especially when he's still giving us this kind of great music and i respect his uh religious beliefs it's just not as much fun when he's not the dirty hornbag that he used to be <laughs> but that having been said i gotta say this is a buy it record for me i i enjoy the good parts and all is forgiven i don't care how many sins prince commits when you know he's playing get on the boat and he just says maceo you know and parker takes it off with this i still love the guy i love him too jim but i can't go as far as you are in endorsing this record i think it's about half of a great record the other half is really execrable that said i think he's still capable of making great great music so definitely a burn it so on the uh, patented sound opinions buy it burn it trash it scale uh i'm being kinder than mr cott i say buy it greg says burn it gonna leave me I can see that far away look in your eyes I can tell by the way you hold me darling you know that it won't 
a little bit of uh, Buck Owens, the country star who influenced so many other styles of music. Uh, the Beatles, Ray Charles, Dwight Yoakam, all uh, paying tribute to Buck Owens by doing his music. And uh, John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival referencing Buck Owens in one of his most famous songs, Looking Out My Back Door. Buck Owens, a great country star, dead at 76. His funeral was last weekend in his hometown of uh, Bakersfield. All the headlines about Buck Owens said, <laughs> Star of hee-haw. Hee-haw. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I got to admit, uh, Greg, I, I hadn't thought about why this guy was important or more notable beyond being the star of hee-haw. So school me. Why should we pine for Buck Owens? Well, Buck Owens was the man in country music. First of all, he was one of the first guys to use the Telecaster along with Don Rich. So they had that sort of rougher, gritty sound in the early 50s already. Here's a little bit of that fuzz tone Telecaster on a Buck Owens song, Who's Gonna Mow Your Grass in 1968, and this blew some country listeners' minds hearing this. He came out of Bakersfield, born in Texas, but really uh, started playing around the honky-tonks in Bakersfield, California. And a guy named Merle Haggard was the bass player in uh, Buck Owens' band. That should tell yeah. you a little bit about what kind of, the you know, number relevance. one country outlaw guy. The Absolutely. birth of alternative country in that dusty, dirty Bakersfield scene. Exactly, Jim. And nobody gives Buck Owens credit for being the outlaw that he was because he did star in this mainstream television show for Which, you got to admit, was just the worst. Yeah, well, you know, it was hayseed. It, it kind of put the... You know, the corn pone in country and made it sort of uncool in some ways among hipsters to like country music. Yeah. Because there was these corny guys. But you listen to Buck Owens' song, Owens was the real deal. And that's why the Beatles covered him. That's why guys like Dwight Yoakam worshipped him and brought him back into sort of the mainstream by recording his song. Steve Earle was a huge fan. Mm. The Bottle Rockets. It's kind of like if we reduced all of Louis Armstrong's incredible career to Hello, Dolly. That's kind of what happened to, to poor Buck. Exactly. To so let's pay some tribute to Buck on the way out of here, Greg. Uh, Act Naturally, uh, probably his best-known song, courtesy the Beatles. You'll hear how closely the Beatles actually honed to his arrangement. Later on, we've got a Flaming Lips review, their new album, At War with the Mystics, album number 11, and Jenny Lewis live in the Jim and K. Maybe studio. We'll make the scene about a man that's sad and lonely And baking down upon his bended I'll play the part, but I won't need rehearsing. All I'll have to do is act naturally. Well, I'll bet you I'm a gonna be a big star. Might win an Oscar, you can't never tell. The movie's gonna make me a big star. Cause I can play the part. Oh, well, well, I hope you come to see me in the movies. Then I know that you are plain to see. Biggest fool that's ever hit the big time. And all I gotta do is act naturally. We'll make the scene 
about a man that's sad and lonely and begging down upon his bended knees. I'll play the part. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, a pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott, pop music critic with the Chicago Tribune. We're here with Jenny Lewis and her band. Uh, Jenny, welcome to Sound Opinions. Great to have you here. Thanks for having us. Hey, cool. I like the reverb. We should keep that on. That'll be psychedelic. We both were huge fans, Jenny. Uh, Greg and I reviewed it on the show a couple weeks ago, your solo debut, Rabbit Fur Coat. And I guess we wanted to start by just asking about the differences in striking out on your own as a solo artist with this record and uh, being a member leader of Rilo Kylie and uh, the timing. You know, why now? Well, I think... um some of the differences are probably obvious. When you're in a band situation, it's more of a collaborative process. And writing the songs initially, I tend to kind of do that on my own, but then I bring them to the band, and everything is uh, up for discussion. But with this, I think just the songs, it was more of a private process, and uh, the recording process was a lot more laid back, and there wasn't a a whole lot of debate over what exactly would happen. We just kind of let it uh, flow. But with this record, I started writing the songs while we were finishing up more adventurous And I kind of realized that it would be a long time before I would be able to record them, and I didn't want to forget them, so I went in the studio. So what about the timing of this record, Jenny? Uh, Rilo Kiley's last album, More Adventurous, had quite a bit of success, sold about 100,000 copies. You headlined uh, at the Coachella Festival last summer. You know, nice gradual build to that record. Your career appeared to be peaking. Uh, your record company must have been thrilled that you decided your next move was a a solo record (laughs) as opposed to another Rilo Kiley record. Um, You know, I think uh, hopefully everyone understands that this is kind of a part of what we've always done in Rilo Kylie. Jason plays drums with Bright Eyes. Blake just put out his second elected record. So I think this allows us to keep the band going, and and we always feel rejuvenated when we come back. So I I think everyone understands that it's in the band's best interest to be able to go off and explore these other uh, musical options, I guess. Cool. Still, you're a generous collaborator. You give co-billing on the record to the Watson twins, and Chandra and Lee are here. What was that collaboration like in the studio? I mean, were they in the, were you hearing their harmonies as you were writing the songs? Um, well, initially, we got together for the first time. I was asked to participate in a, a hootenanny. It was actually Jonathan's uh, show, and a bunch of our friends who are songwriters were getting together, and we were to play three songs each. And I was a little afraid to play by myself. And I remembered singing with the girls with Rilo Kylie years before. So we got together and figured out, I think it was three, three songs. And it went so well and it was so easy that they just became more and more a part of the record. But it was a real collaborative process coming up with the ideas. And I had some specifics, some keywords. I think just in writing songs, I, I tend to want to cram a lot of ideas and words in there. And it allowed me to kind of take a break and to have them continue the lyrical thought. So I had some initial ideas and then we worked together and uh, it just, it was, it was easy. So Jonathan's one of your guitarists who's here with he you. He is, Jonathan Rice. Okay. And you have a pedal steel player. Uh, lap steel. Lap steel. That's right. Farmer Dave over there. No pedal involved in <laughs> Farmer Dave's lap steel. Why don't you guys play us a tune and we'll chat a little more. Sure. This is Swell Diggs, huh? I, our boss is here, so we have to mention this is the Jim and K Maybe Studios. We, we were having so much fun abusing this place. Usually it's like <laughs> classical jazz musicians, you know. Who are the maybes? 
I don't know. We're gonna have to find this out. I don't know, but uh, they, they paid for the, the joint, so it's all right. <laughs> They're cool by us, man. Yeah. What are you changing? Who do you think you're changing? You can't change things. We're all stuck in our ways. It's like trying to clean the ocean. What do you think you can drain in? Well, it was poison and dry long before you came. But you can wake up younger under the knife. And you can wake up sounder if you get analyzed. And I better wake up. There but for the grace of God go I It's hard to believe your prophets When they're asking you to change things But with their suspect lives We look the other way Are you really that pure, sir? Thought I saw you in Vegas It was not but she was But she will wake up wealthy And you will wake up 45 And she will wake up with a baby There but for the grace of God I can't escape that way The windows are in flames And what's that on your ankle? You say they're not coming for you But house arrest is really just the same Like when you wake up behind the bar Trying to
Lovely. Great stuff. Thanks. Great stuff. What we have here is uh, secular gospel music. You guys are <laughs> hymns to, uh, you certainly have some issues with, with faith and spirituality and that are, I think is a theme throughout this record. For that matter, I've heard that as well in Rilo Kiley records. But beautiful stuff. It's certainly influenced by gospel music, I think. But uh, at the same time, you're not singing songs in praise of a higher power. Well, well tell us about that song, Jenny. Um, you know, this record is... I didn't really intend to write a record about um, believing or disbelieving in God. And I think the beginning of the record with a song like The Big Guns kind of poses these questions. And by the end of the record, I don't think I've really figured anything out at all. <laughs> kind of just chasing my own tail a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't really pretend to understand, nor do I intend to, to preach to anyone. But I think, you know, the songs are definitely secular, but I think the girls, of course, bring a, a gospel element. Yeah, can you speak to that a little bit, Leon Chandra, you know, your background and how you connected with Jenny in terms of this kind of music? I would say, well, we started um, singing in choirs in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where we grew up. We learned how to sing harmonies there, but it was kind of something that was came very easy to us. I think being twins and being sisters, it's something that you just sort of innately know where that person's going to go in their harmonies. You know, it's something that we've always we've always kind of had this style of a singing. And when we met with Jenny, the songs just immediately clicked, especially with that song, like the call and response aspect of it. Doing that, you know, was just came naturally to us and... We've just sort we of come from like you know country and bluegrass music, and that has a lot of gospel and religious influence in general. So I think that has helped, and we love soul music as well. So it sort of all kind of comes together to make a pretty picture. <laughs> well, it, it it sounds great, and I think it was kind of unexpected, Jenny, from you. Um, people didn't realize maybe that you had this side to you. You know, listening to the Rilo Kylie records, which are more you know pop records, pop rock. And this is soul gospel side to you. And I know that you've mentioned this uh, Laura Nero record that she made with LaBelle, Gonna Take a Miracle, is kind of a, a signpost for you. And again, you know, it's not like, yeah, I was listening to Black Flag B-Sides. I was listening to <laughs> Laura Nero, you know. So to talk a little bit about that uh, influence on this record. I don't know if this record sounds anything like that great Laura Nero record, but all I know is that it was the first record of my mother's record collection that I fell in love with. And we would sing along to it, you know, on Sundays in the kitchen while making uh, breakfast. Um, So it was really important to me. And I think it sort of left with me the desire to sing with women. Having grown up singing with my mom and my sister, um, it kind of made sense to then sing with the girls. Um, But that's just a great record. And and we've been touring a little bit, and we do a song from that record, which isn't actually a Laura Nero song, but it's called I Met Him on a Sunday. Well, I met him on a Sunday. great to just kind of pay homage to one of my favorite records. And, and I take it this kind of music maybe didn't fit onto a Rilo Kylie record? Well, I don't, I don't know if that was really, if I was really aware of that. I think when you're in a band, people tend to want to participate. 
So a song like Rabbit for Coat wouldn't make it on a Rilo Kylie record. There would be a shaker or a synthesizer or, you know, something going on underneath. So I guess with this, I wanted to kind of let the songs um, be in the forefront and then the voices. And uh, I think some of these songs could have possibly been on a Rilo Kylie record. And I recorded a couple of extra songs for this record that didn't make it on the record that it'll probably end up on the next Rilo Kylie record. And it's interesting, Jenny, that you mentioned <clears throat> Rabbit Fur Coat, the title track, because in addition to, uh, to being stripped down, it's also intensely personal. I think, unless you're you're portraying a character when you you know you have someone talking about the mixed blessing of of the hundred thousand dollar childhood, <laughs> it's a, it's a question I'm certain you were sick to death of, uh, you know, but you were an actress at an early age, and I mean I heard it and said, wow, here's a really personal song about the challenges and and also the good things about, but mostly the challenges in that song. You have a drug addicted mom, stage mom, kind of managing the career of this kid. I think, you know, there are some characters at play in that song, and it's a, a complex sentiment within a very kind of simple song. You know, mm. the chords are very simple. And there are elements that ring true, but I, I think it's important to say that, that uh, my life is not quite that interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. But in general, are these more personal songs than, than what you do in a band setting? Not necessarily. I think mm. there have been some pretty personal songs, you know, on the last three Rilo Kylie records. Again, you know, it's tough to know where the the truth ends and the the uh, lying begins. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is that that question of of authenticity. I mean, critics, so many critics, not particularly Greg and myself, are obsessed with that question. You know, Greg and I have inf- interviewed any number of old bluesmen who you know are singing the back porch blues, but they got out of the Cadillac, you know, when they were going to do it. But the old country world is so obsessed with this notion: is she real or not? You know, and I mean, does that sort of ever bother you? Well, I, I think it's important to understand California. I'm from California, and that's, you know, if you think about some of the music that came out of central California, you know, sure. the Hillbilly Swing and mm. Bob Wills. Mm-hmm. And so I think this kind of music made its way out west. Um, so don't don't exclude us because you yeah, know, I'm yeah. not from uh, the south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Uh, you get outside L.A. and there's some real pockets of very rural and very country-influenced uh, stuff there. There's no doubt about it. Bakersfield. Exactly, Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have it. At the same point, you uh, did a Traveling Wilburys cover. Again, something that, man, couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Where did that come from? And it's kind of a cool little thing because uh, I think it's one of those songs that's going to go down in, in the lore. You know, oh, man, Jenny Lewis was on that and Ben Gibbard from, uh, you know, Death Cab for Cutie and Connor Oberst and M. Ward. They all sang on that song. People are going to maybe draw comparisons to the Dylan, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, George Harrison original. I, I mean, I, I hope people don't really <laughs> yeah. do that because it was a lighthearted decision to record that song. And I, I love the lyrics in that song. And I wanted to kind of hear some of the lyrics from a female perspective. And I think it changes things a little bit. And it was just a fun opportunity to get my friends together and have Ben Gibbard play a mean 12-string guitar mm-hmm. and have Matt Ward, you know, do his best but, you know, I think in a way we're, again, kind of paying homage to some of our heroes. Why don't you guys play another tune? Tell us about it. What are you going to play? We're going to play The Charge in Sky. One, two, three, four. Oh, wait. Sorry. Three, four. <laughs> the Kleinanizer. <laughs> if I run uphill, I'm out of breath. If I spend all of my money, then I've got no money 
our place All of my chips on only one bed I'm all in But it's a surefire bed I'm gonna die So I'm taking up praying on Sunday nights And it's not that I believe in your own mind But I might as well As insurance open like a big bright light and it blinds you into fearing, consuming and fighting in the desert underneath the charging sky it's just you and God but what if God's not there but his name is on your dollar bill which just became kind of for the evangelists, the communists, the lefts and the rights And the hypocrites and the Jesuits and the blacks and the whites It's in the belly of the beast In the Chicago streets Or up in Laurel Canyon The village of the Middle East been happening long enough to mention it have a mention my parents are getting back together again it's been 25 years of spreading infection somehow we're not affected so my mom she brushes her hair and my dad starts growing bob dylan's beard and i share with my friends a couple of Orlando streets in the belly of the beast. That sounded great. Um, we're here on Sound Opinions with Jenny Lewis and her fine band, Chandra and Lee Watson, Jonathan Rice, and Dave Scher. Uh, Jenny, basically you're telling stories in these songs, aren't you? Uh, you're a storyteller. Yeah. You know, I've been writing songs with and without Blake for many, many years, and it's just more interesting to me right now to be able to create and uh, destroy characters. And yeah. so Blake sent it from Rilo Kiley. Yeah. Did he like the album? He did. He does, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, would he tell you if he didn't? <laughs> he would. He would. We're close like that. As, uh, how it has to be in a band, you know? Yeah. Got to be honest. It took him a little while to listen to it, but when he when he did... You know, it's a tough thing. When, when he made his first elected record, I was afraid he'd never come back. Mm. So I'm sure he had uh, similar feelings. But he seems to like it all right. Oh, so you're not going to do a Lauryn Hill here? You know, Fuji's. <laughs> see you later. But you know, the it's been Fuji's fun. are back together. <laughs> yeah. I think. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Jenny and uh, Ben, thank you so much. This is terrific. You guys Thanks. sounded great. Thanks. And thank uh, you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome gospel hoedown here at Sound Opinions. <laughs> 
You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. To hear more of the songs that Jenny Lewis and her band performed here in the studio, go to soundopinions.org. You can also find some footnotes for this show and every other show there. We're going to be back in a minute with a review of the Flaming Lips' 11th album and a Desert Island jukebox pick. I'd rather be lonely I'd rather be free As the moon rolls around the sea But I like watching you undress And I think we're at our best By the flicker, by the light of the TV set I can't remember why I hated you Can't remember why I still do But I'm as sure as the moon Rolls around you That I could be happy Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, that is a little bit of the flaming lips, the wand from their latest album, At War with the Mystics, their latest album in a 24-year career out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the least likely spot on earth, perhaps, for a, a great rock and roll band to be born. But that is, in fact, what happened. <laughs> I'm not sure there was a history of rock and roll in Oklahoma City much before the uh, the lips got there. Well, that's not actually true. Eddie Cochran. Is Eddie that right? Cochran. Yeah, and, and also you can't Eddie forget... Eddie Cochran to, was born in Oklahoma Eddie, City? Eddie Cochran no was an Oklahoman, my friend. And, wow. Uh, and they're also... Uh, let us not forget the home state of Will Rogers. So there is <laughs> there is a history of uh, homespun, strange, humorous philosophers. You have one up me there. Uh, that, that's pretty cool. Eddie Cochran, that's a pretty good start. But Eddie Cochran was about three decades before these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, <laughs> there quite was some pretty time. much nothing going on in the early 80s when the lips got going. They basically created their own scene there. And for the most most part had a small committed core of fans to show for it for about 10 years finally had a breakthrough in uh, 1993-1994 with transmissions from the satellite heart a terrific terrific album their first masterpiece and a out of left field hit she don't use jelly that MTV eventually picked up and uh, and turned these guys into what a lot of people wrote off as a one hit wonder which is a complete misreading of their career. But for a while, they got stuck with that tag. Yeah. They proved all their critics wrong, I think, in 1999 with The Soft Bulletin, and an album that, again, was widely critically acclaimed, sold a good number as well, and really put them on the map in terms of, okay, this is a band that really matters. They followed it up with Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots, their first gold-selling album, the first album in their entire career to sell 500,000. Jim, we were just talking yeah. about late career comebacks. I don't know if it... If it qualifies as a comeback, 
but certainly for a band. Well, they never the, went there in the first yeah. place. It wasn't a comeback. Ten albums into their career. Yeah, they have the best-selling they, they, album. They sell half a million in the United States, half a million overseas, a platinum album. You have to really scratch your head to think about a band that that late, 23 years and ten albums on, finally hits pay dirt. It's really been an amazing run. And, and, and they kept that run with a mind-blowing performance at the Coachella Music Festival in 2004, where Wayne Coyne, the lead singer in the band, comes out in this huge translucent space bubble that literally rolls over 50,000 people out in this valley in California. And it was on the front page of newspapers all around the valley the the next day. Well, I I would say they actually capped that era on New Year's Eve. 2004 to 2005 Mm -hmm. when they played Madison Square Garden to come over the course of 23 years from their first gig at a gay black transvestite cowboy bar in Oklahoma (laughs) City to the floors of Madison Square Garden, you know, pounding those boards that their heroes, The Who and Led Zeppelin had pounded, playing with Wilco from Chicago. Now, we should put a disclaimer in here because I have just written a book, The Flaming Lips Story, a biography of The Flaming Lips, Staring at Sound. So obviously I'm very close to this band and uh, as you were with Wilco. I'm flashing back to when (laughs) we reviewed Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and your biography of Wilco was coming out. But before we go any further, we've got to hear some of this new album. I know there's a track you're dying to play, Jim. Uh, I kind of was twisting your arm to play this track. It's called Pompeii Am Gatterdamerang, <laughs> typically fanciful Lips title. And actually, it's a departure of some sort for the band because Stephen Drozd, who's the multi-instrumentalist, uh, plays drums, but also basically everything else on the records, is singing it. It's basically about this young teenage couple that sees the volcano in Pompeii about to explode and is kind of running towards the end of their lives. That's Pompeii from the Flaming Lips at War with the Mystics. To my mind, the, the best track, I think, uh, Jim, on their new record. Really? You like that more than The Wand, where we came in? I do. It's clearly more in the traditional vein, heavily orchestrated, whereas the rest of this record is less so. They're definitely not repeating themselves. The Soft Bulletin was very orchestrated. Yoshimi Battles, The Pink Robots had a lot of these new electronic elements thrown in. There's elements of all of that here, as well as back to the early days when they were just basically a guitar-based drums band. You hear some of that more sparse, stripped-down, guitar-based rock here. And I personally like that direction from them. I like to hear them going back to that sound. I'm not sure that they could have pushed 
the orchestral thing or the electronic thing much further than they did on the last two records. I think it's refreshing that they've gone back to this approach. But that said, Jim, I have to say that this record does not blow me away. I'm a huge Lips fan. You and I were two of the few critics in the country who really championed Transmissions when it came out in 93. And I think The Soft Bulletin is right up there, uh, two fantastic albums from The Lips. I don't think At War with the Mystics is up to that standard. I do think that there's some some misses on this record. It's almost like they tried to out-gimmick themselves. The Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song I really find annoying. I've listened to that song 20 times, <laughs> and I really don't want to listen to it a 21st time. That's the first single, and they yeah. just played it a couple of nights ago when they appeared on Late Night with David Letterman. also don't like Wayne Coyne, the singer, is trying to use his voice in different ways on this record, primarily uh, leaping into this falsetto uh, faux R&B voice that I just do not think suits him well, well I pushing think his voice uh, where it really doesn't belong. What they were going for was a Curtis Mayfield yeah. psychedelic soul thing. I was in the studio uh, for a chunk of the making of this album. I feel like I'm too close with my biography coming out to actually review it. But let me offer perhaps a couple of ways that fans might find a little bit of insight here. The reviews I'm reading are all over the map. Some people are loving it. Some people are hating it. A lot of people are scratching their heads in pure befuddlement, which I find fascinating. For a band that's been around, as you're saying, 24 years, on album number 11, and people are saying... I don't know what to make of this record. Yeah. I mean, that never happens. Another thing I will say is that the Lips have always been their own worst judge of their best material. They've never really gotten it. But in in my book, I offer a theory, Greg, and it was a way of looking at this long and very twisted career. The Lips have always had one major artistic breakthrough album in A Priest Driven Ambulance, or before that, the record Oh My God. Transmissions was one of these records, like you were saying. Soft Bulletin was one of these records. And then they've had an album where they kind of consolidated things messed around a little bit, were kind of repeating themselves from the album before, and were also looking for new directions. Now, that was okay when it was two years between albums. It's been almost four and a half years between Yoshimi and Mystics, and yet they're clearly trying to figure out where they're going next on a lot of this record. I think we should accept it as such, and hopefully they'll actually release another album more quickly this time and reward us as they have in the past. But boy, I don't know. The fact well, that there's so much to talk about and so much debate in the music world about this album, those that's got to be a good thing. You're absolutely right. Those are all good things, and I was heartened by the live show. Some of these songs that I didn't think quite worked as well on record worked better were live. meant to be played in a big arena yeah. with the balloons and the streamers and Wayne up there, you know, being his carnival barker slash frontman role to the hilt. That works really well. And, and the subtext for this record, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but this is the most political lips record. They're, well, they're more upfront about their politics than ever before. They've never had politics. Two and a half decades as a band, and they never, ever got political. Now, albeit they do it in a very lipsy fashion. That song, The Wand, is about the oppressed peoples of the world suddenly finding the tool that is going <laughs> to enable them to turn the table on those evil mother blanks who run the world, and it's a magic wand. Right. That's a whole new area to have this kind of whimsical surrealism merging with politics. Yeah, I mean, were, that's where Dadaism started, mm-hmm. right? And they were always viewed as these guys who would always saw the light at the end of the darkness, the guys who would sort of be optimistic in the face of all this tragedy and death. I think the Lips have been one of the great and unique bands of the last two decades simply because they have cut against the grain so well. They have done the unexpected, and they have uh, made optimism 
cool in, yeah. in the face of, oh, it's not hip to be. Of cynicism. You have to be ironic. You have to be cynical. Yeah. And they weren't that at all. All right. So I'm recusing myself uh, from, from weighing in on the patented buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I'm really curious to hear what the next couple of words out of your mouth are going to be because you have just talked at length and with some enthusiasm, if a little bit of hesitation about this album, you're not going to pull your punch. This, is, it, a tra- this is a transitional record for them. Yeah. Uh, they are not. This is by no means a, oh, you're a, not a, a finished it, masterpiece like uh, the Soft Bulletin yeah, but is or every record, Transmissions from the Satellite Not heart. every record you recommend buying is a full-on masterpiece. No, I've got to, I've got to say it's a burn it. I, I, oh. For the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song alone. You know, it was a bothersome song to me, and it's, no, it, a and lot it's of more bothersome two weeks jelly later. Is, is a stupid song, but it, it, it's great stupid. Yeah, it's great but the, stupid. There, there's too much of that gimmicky stuff on this record. I oh. think they had a great record in them, yeah. and they blew it with some of their sonic decisions on this record. So you're saying it's a burn it, Greg. Okay, let me tell you how this is going to go. It's going to be 1130 at night in July, and we are going to be out there after having baked in the sun all day, and the Flaming Lips are going to play on that main stage in Grand Park at Lollapalooza, okay? Yeah. And they are going to blow everybody's mind. Yeah, they They're will. going to show us stuff we've It'll never be seen great before, show, I'm sure. and it's going to be six or seven songs from the new album, and you're going to turn to me, you know, <laughs> suddenly you're going to proclaim fealty. I didn't get it. It kicked in. Although... Because it's it's you and it's me, you're never going to admit that to me. But that's how it's going to go. All right. And so what will happen is we'll Jason see. or Robin will be watching, and they'll get your number. The live show, I'm sure, as I said, I was impressed with the live show. I just well, the live the show record. is made up of songs that are on this album, Yeah, but the see. songs so on the, the record album, are annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, oh, man, oh, man. We'll see. <laughs> I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn at popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, picking a track that we couldn't live without. Mr. Cott, it is your week. All right, back in the 50s, Jim, white artists covering black music often sounded ridiculous. And I'm thinking, Exhibit A is Pat Boone covering Tutti Frutti by Little Richard. Sad. Inevitably, it was somehow watered down. It was made worse. It was sort of a cliche. I mean, the R&B songs were big hits for uh, black artists on the so-called race market. And white artists would cover those songs and make it more palatable for the mainstream white audience. And often it, it just turned out horribly. But here's an example of a song that I think, almost in spite of itself, worked much better than the original. And, and the original won bad. The original was a song called Fever by one Little Willie John. He had a big R&B hit with it in 1956, wrote the song. And there's lots of testosterone in this record. I mean, he is burning alive. He's running a 108-degree temperature yeah, yeah. thinking about his baby. <laughs> it's and, hot. It's a hot and song. It, and it's a great song. Give me fever When you kiss me Fever when you hold me tight Fever in the morning Fever all through the night Peggy Lee, who is perhaps the most unlikely person you could imagine to cover a wild, testosterone-driven R&B song in the 50s, did an amazing version of it that I think actually improved upon the original. 
A lot of people have covered this song over the years, not just Peggy Lee, but a band called the McCoys in 65, Rita Coolidge, a guy called Pete Bennett and the Embers had a hit with in 61, Alvin Brian Robinson Eno. in 64. You ever hear Brian. the Eno single? Great single. Brian Eno actually did a single of this. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So anyway, great song. The raw material is there. What Peggy Lee did with it, though, was she took it in a completely different direction. Not only did she jazz it up and strip it down, but she also wrote a bunch of new lyrics for it, uncredited, and, and did a great job with the lyrics. It really made it a sexy song, even sexier than it was originally. The song was all about lust and heat when uh, Little Willie John did it. And when Peggy Lee did it, she did it very cool and understated, very intimate. I can only imagine what a singer like Christina Aguilera or Mariah Carey would have done with this song. They would have turned <laughs> it into top, yeah. an Olympic Slaughter event, it. and they would have just killed it. And Peggy Lee just dialed it way down. They're basically just finger snaps, bongos, and an upright bass. Peggy Lee did a wonderful job. Uh, uh, definitely, she knew that, that a whisper, cooing in your ear, is sexier by far than shouting. Absolutely. Not bad for uh, the, the former Norma Dolores Engstrom <laughs> of North Dakota. The last person on earth you would think to do a great version of a, a rock and roll classic. But Peggy Lee, I think, accomplished that very thing on this song. It's Fever from Peggy Lee, her uh, classic from 1958 on Sound Opinions. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever when you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight. Fever in the morning, a fever all through the night. Everybody's Got the fever, that is something you all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Peggy Lee, Fever, I Need a Towel, Jim. Thank you very much. That was, uh, <laughs> I needed that. Next week, we've got new records from Morrissey, The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, and Pink, among others. A big month for album releases, Jim, and we're going to catch up with a few of them on next week's show. This week, we got some thank yous to say. Mary Gaffney engineered that great performance by Jenny Lewis and the band, so thanks, Mary. Tori Malatia is our executive producer and our guru about all things home improvement. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel's our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. We get lots of legal help from Dino Armiros and technical assistance from Joe Dassault. What a lovely way 